1 John 5:18 through 21. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, welcome to Sojourn. Uh, Advent season coincided for us with our ending of our time in 1 John, but it feels like a, an excellent Advent passage as we think about the, the reality that Christ has come. Uh, I've heard this of psychiatric wards maybe in the past or mental health hospitals or institutions. Uh, I couldn't verify it, so don't know this 100%. You can check my facts during your Christmas break. But I've heard that they used to ask their patients three basic questions when they'd come in. Who are you? Where are you? And what time is it? Again, I tried to look this up to verify that this actually was a practice. Could not find anything, so that's up to you. We're going to pretend that it was and that those three questions were basic questions, needed questions, that in the most chaotic situation and in the most chaotic individuals, like we need to know some things or it would be really good to know at least these three basic questions. In a crowded mind, in the midst of chaos, it's nice to know who you are, where you are, and what time it is. Now, surrounding John's audience were, were people that were claiming a different Jesus, that he wasn't the Christ, or, or that the Son of God hadn't come in the flesh. They were claiming that it's okay to live a different lifestyle. You don't need to walk in the same way Jesus walked. You can walk however. Or you, they were claiming that fellowship with other believers is sort of optional, and you can leave it behind and not love other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so these uh, People were surrounding John's original readers, and this crowded their minds and, and confused John's audience. And because of those things, John wanted to make sure they knew some things because there were some things that they thought they knew that they didn't then hold to with, with any sort of certainty any longer because they were hearing so much noise from people that they used to walk with, used to trust, used to live life with that are telling them something different now. And to the midst of that confusion and crowded minds, John brings this, I think of it as like a sledgehammer of assurance. And he just starts swinging this sledgehammer. And he swings with clarity, saying, we know, we know, we know, all through this epistle. And to close out 1 John, John gives us three more swings with that assurance sledgehammer. Three more swings of clarity saying, we know, we know, we know. And he also gives us one exhortation, one command to live out. And I think that these three uh, we knows and the the one exhortation or command, they, they fit under these three questions from the psychiatric word well. The questions of who are you, where are you, and what time is it? Who are you? John says, we know that we are born of God. That's who we are. Where are we? We know that the whole world where we dwell is under the power of the evil one, but we are in Christ in this world. We're in him. What time is it? Or what are we to be doing? What are we to set our lives to? Because we're born of God and because Even though we're born of God, we're we're still in this world that's under the power of the evil one. What are we to be doing? And because that's this already not yet reality in our lives, because we're in between advents, we're to keep ourselves from idols. And obviously today we don't share the same context as John's original audience, but but we live in uncertain times. Sometimes our our daily schedules are thrown into flux uh, because someone has a fever or our travel plans are completely canceled. Everything can be uncertain in our lives. Socially, things can be uncertain. 
Politically, things are uncertain. Economically, things can be uncertain. We could go on and on, and there's all sorts of uncertainty. And in the midst of our uncertain times, man, it's good to know some things. And John wants to leave his readers on firm ground. He wants them to know some things. And he takes them to the answers of these three basic questions to put them on firm ground, to put us on firm ground. And so first, we know that he gives is the answer to the who are you? And he gives us the answer to this question of who are you with a familiar uh, image that he has given throughout his writings, both in his gospel and in First John, and it's the image of birth. Listen to verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. What's implied in verse 18 is that those who were born of God were those who were sinning under the power of the evil one of verse 19 that says that we know the whole world Uh, is under the power of the evil one. It's implied that his audience was that. They were sinners, sinning in this world where they are under the power of another. That's where everyone starts. We all have sinful natures. We think that maybe perhaps humanity is neutral as if they're watching the game of good and evil in the stands and and eating popcorn and trying to figure out, well, I'll, I'll pick a side when I see the merits of both sides. But that's not the truth. The truth is that we're not in the bleachers passively kind of taking things in. We're very much in the game. And the game that we're in, we're on a certain side. And the side that we're on by birth is against God. The side that wants to give him the stiff arm and live the way that we want to live. That's where we all begin. That's where all start. That's where all John's readers start. All were sinning as those who were under the power, verse 19, of the evil one. And the way out of that, the way out of that power, the way out of that enslavement that we have to our sin is described not as us or anyone, any individual working their way toward God, but rather as God working a new birth in us. And God makes the first loving move towards sinners that are under the power of the evil one in this world, and he delivers them by birth. He delivers them. We read it this way. It says this in, in John, his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What does he do here? What does he tie? He says, those who believe, who received Jesus, were those who were born. And they were born of God. And it wasn't their own, like, inheritance that they deserved by their own blood, or it wasn't their own will. They didn't just grab a hold of it because they were like, we're checking out the game. Oh, the God side. I'll pick that one. I'll go there. That's not what happens. They were born not by blood or by their own will, but they were born because of God. It's a birth from above. Those who believe were born, and this birth is the work of God and necessary for them to believe. This is what we see in John chapter 3, a page over here. Nicodemus who is one you would think if, if anybody by blood or by will would, would be able to inherit the kingdom of God, and would be on God's side, it would be a, a man like Nicodemus. But he comes asking, hey, we've heard some things about you, and we're, we're curious. And, and Jesus responds to him in, in John chapter 3, verse 3, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one, that is anyone, is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The... the The necessity for seeing the kingdom of God, the necessity for being part of God's family, is to be born again. Well, how how does one do that? That's what Nicodemus asks. Like, how can I be born if I'm old? And it's a good question that brings clarity. And Jesus says this in chapter 3, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He would go on to say, unless one is born from above. And so we're we're saying then, you have to be born of God in order to see the kingdom of God. Well, then how does one know that if you're born of God or not? Well, 1 John comes along. And he uses all kinds of born birth language throughout this epistle in 1 John. So kind of go through this with me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29 
if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been what? Has been born of God. Chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Very similar to what we see in verse 18, that passage. In chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In chapter 5, verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And finally, again, verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. All of these, all that First John has written was meant to affirm in them, right? He writes for assurance, is meant to affirm in them that they have been born of God. But notice in all of these references, there's an of or from. They're born of God, they're from God. All attached to God. In other words, he is telling his audience that they have a new source, a new origin of life. And verse 18 affirms that when God births someone, when they're born of God, that that then leads to a certain life. That's clear throughout 1 John and clear here in 1 John 5, 18, that when God works on someone, when someone is of God or from God, that then leads to a certain thing, a life lived before God. One's spiritual birth has a continuing result in their life, a result of a life of faith, or there has been no spiritual birth. One's spiritual birth has this continuing result of a life of faith, or there has been no spiritual birth. If you have walked an aisle, said a prayer, been baptized, filled out a spiritual birthday card, done all sorts of good things, but have no life of faith that looks like what First John has described, then we cannot say that you are born of God. One spiritual birth, which is a necessity for life with God, is evident in a life of faith lived before God, or there has been no spiritual birth. First John, in his context, he would say, hey, if one claims a different sort of Jesus, but still to be okay with God, they're not born of God. Or if one doesn't walk in love as he is love, then they're not born of God. If one doesn't live in the same way in which Jesus lived, walk in the way he walked, then they're not born of God. If one leaves the fellowship and doesn't have any interest in the people of God, then they're not born of God. This is, John has given these out clearly throughout 1 John. See, spiritual birth has an effect. There is a life of faith that is lived out before God. Spiritual birth is, is an end and a beginning. Most births are just beginning of life, but, but spiritual birth is an end and a beginning at the same time, in the same event, is the end of the old life, of the old nature. And it is the beginning of a new life and a new nature in Christ. It's a decisive end to that old nature, to being of or from the world that lies under the power of the evil one, and a new beginning to being of or from God to the point that one lives a life that is different now. And John describes it like this, that one doesn't keep on sinning if one has had that birth. Because the old has gone and the new has come. And so one couldn't keep on sinning. John doesn't give us wiggle room or his opponent's wiggle room to claim to be from God and then to keep living a sinful lifestyle. And that person is not from God, John would say. Now, when we read verse 18, my, my guess is that this verse makes a few of us a little bit nervous because of the ongoing reality of sin that we know is in our lives. And you should know that there is an ongoing reality of sin in your lives. And so we have to think carefully again about what verse 18 actually means. Now we know from John that there is no sort of expectation anywhere in his thought or in his writings that there is an expectation that Christians will then be perfect and not walk in sin at all. Remember chapter 1 verse 8? If you claim to be without sin, John says, you're a liar. There's your sin right there. And in verse 9 of chapter 1, he gives the path for Christians for them dealing with their sin in their lives. What does he say? If we confess our sins. If we, you know, the, the, like implied in there is that we're confessing and we're repenting 
and we're looking to Jesus for forgiveness from sins that we have committed. Right? So there's the path for Christians who have sin that's ongoing. In chapter 3, verse 2, he says what we will be, like Christ, hasn't yet appeared. We're not there yet. We haven't arrived. And so there's an understanding in chapter 3, verse 2, that we're not there yet. In chapter 5, verse 16, we just did this last week. What do we know? We know if you see a brother that commits a sin that, that doesn't lead to death, and we talked about that, so you can reference that if you want. But it, there are brothers that have sins that don't lead to death, I think. And so he says, what do you do for them? You pray for them. In other words, there is some ongoing sin. So there's no sort of expectation of perfection that we're going to reach as Christians. We're going to reach this certain level where we don't have any sin. We don't keep on sinning at all, ever, period. Rather, I think those born of God are those who are characterized by pursuing a life apart from sin. Not to say they don't have any sin, but they are pursuing a life without sin. They have this settled disposition against sin, so much so that they couldn't be characterized as those who keep on sinning. In fact, for true believers, those who are of God, who are from God, that very description that you're one that we keep on sinning should be appalling to you, something you would want to be repulsed by. We would never want that to characterize our lives, that we would keep on sinning against our Lord how could we want to be characterized by that? And if you're of God, John is saying, you wouldn't. So to believer, the reality for you is if you're born of God, then you're living a life of faith. But that matters about knowing who you are. Do you know who you are? Do you know you are born of God? You are from God. That's the reality that John puts in front of his people, that you aren't going to be characterized by your sin. You're more characterized by other things than the reality of, of keep on, than keeping on sinning. I think John Stott says it well when he says, sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet. They cannot live, in, live together in harmony. If there is harmony with sin in your life, then you can't be from God or of God. Or at least, if there's some harmony with sin in your life, then you need to question your faith, examine your faith to see if it's real or not. Now, we might kind of nervously question verse 18 and what it means, but I think that God has shown us verse 18, hasn't he? He's shown us in the person of his son. Right? Here is one who is born of God. Right? Born of God and is the perfect son, the perfect child of God, who shows what the children of God should look like, who shows that this is what those are born of God live like. This is what those who are from God are like. They have the same father. They're from the same God. This is what they should be like. And so I don't think what we should do is take verse 18 and evaluate our lives and start thinking, well, how often do I sin and how often then qualifies me to be part of those ones that keep on sinning? So do I meet verse 18 or not? Or to think, well, how many times uh, of a certain sin then does it mean that, I, that I'm one that keeps on sinning and I'm characterized by my sin? Or we could go the other way and say, well, nobody's perfect and God knows that, so it doesn't really matter. But here's what we can do is we evaluate verse 18 in our own lives with the life of Jesus. And falling short of that it doesn't say, well, everyone falls short of it. No, like we want to be like him. We don't have a, a number of how often or, or how many times we, we want to be like Jesus. And falling short of, of being like Jesus, being like the son from the father, doesn't drive those who are born of God away from God. It draws them even closer. They come again and they say, I've sinned again. I turn away from that and I want forgiveness from you. And I know that it's only from you. That's what those who are born of God do. If they sin and fall short of the likeness and exact image of Jesus, they come closer to their father and they ask him to forgive them again. They abide in Jesus. And that kind of abiding is a, a confessing, repenting, obeying, trusting type of abiding that leads then the believer to not keep on sinning. They're more characterized by their abiding, their confessing, their repenting than they are their sin. So who are you? Who are you? If you're born of God, you're moving in a certain direction. What you will be has not yet appeared, but you're moving that direction. You will be like him. 
That's what chapter 3, verse 2 says. You will be like him. Or, or you might know these familiar words from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Right? We know that those who love God, all things are working together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. But don't miss verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. In order that that son, the, the firstborn, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And what are they going to look like? They're going to look like him. So God is forming those who are from him. He is forming them precisely. It's not some sort of vague image that he wants them to get to, some sort of random bar that we set of, here's how often you can sin and no more to be not you know, disqualified by First John. No, he says, here's the exact image. It's Jesus. I'm using everything, forming you into his likeness. The, the constant in the all things of our lives is that God is forming us to look like the Son, Jesus. And so our ongoing growth into the image of Jesus then is more prominent and should be more prominent than our ongoing sin, because we're from God now. So what's characteristic of your life? Is ongoing sin more characteristic of your life than, than ongoing formation into the likeness of Jesus. Who are you? Maybe take those questions to a, a person from verse 16. Remember verse 16, there's, you see a brother who's committing sin and they pray? Like, that's the kind of person to go ask those questions to as well. Who, who are you? What's more characteristic of my life? Verse 16, brother or sister, please help me understand this. Am I more characterized by ongoing sin or by my ongoing formation into the likeness of Jesus. But verse 18 isn't quite finished yet because John goes on to give some reasons how or why one doesn't keep on sinning. Verse 18, he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Now, there's a textual variant in this verse. A textual variant is to say that there are all sorts of early uh, manuscripts of the Scripture, of the original autographs of the Scripture, that were all copied down, and there's some that have slight differences in them that were very early. And that makes this uh, translation of this passage a little bit difficult to know who's doing the protecting. It's a little bit difficult in the wording even as you read it, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Well, what are the antecedents to all the pronouns there and how do they all fit together? The NIV is clearly goes one side and it says the one born of God rather than he born of God. In your ESV, if you're reading that, the one that's on the screen, the he is lowercase, and so it makes it a little bit more ambiguous. In the NIV, it takes out that ambiguity, puts a capital O, and says the one born of God. In the NAS, it does something similar, capitalizes the H of he who was born of God, and so that's how they take it. And the ESV leaves it a little bit more ambiguous with the lowercase h, he who was born of God. And here's the reality, that, that it's not explicit in the text what this is or what it isn't. It could be that John is referencing capital H, he who was born of God, that is Jesus, as protecting the believer. The, the problem with that is that the, the most updated translations of the New Testament decide against that, and, and instead of he being capital H, do a different way. The NLT says God, Son, holds them securely, so they're square on that. And it is true, right? That is true. If you put a capital H there, it still is true. There's nothing wrong here. We know John 10, Jesus is this good shepherd. He lays his life down for his sheep. He's certainly going to be the shepherd that protects them, loves them, cares for them, sees them through all the way to the end. We know that to be true of Jesus, absolutely. In John chapter 17, if you turn there, John affirms the same truth. John 17, verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. Here he is keeping them, protecting them, which you have given me, and I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Very similar language. So that is absolutely true. If we have a capital H, he, that it's true that we know Jesus, the one born of God, keeps us, protects us. 
but is that taught here? That's the question. This is where a tiny little letter, the textual variant, comes in. It is the letter epsilon, and it changes a, a word from him to himself. So if you look at that translation uh, on verse uh, 18 at the end, I have it underlined, the, the him at the end. One little epsilon, one little letter inserted there changes that word from him to himself. And if that's the case, then it would read something like this. But he who was born of God, that is he lowercase as the ESV has it, protects himself. But that's a, a change that is, the, again, the most updated translations, most updated manuscripts would say, like, there's more evidence to say that there's a himself there rather than a him. And before getting upset and wanting Jesus to protect believers rather than believers to protect themselves, let's remember that, that there are some things that give some weight to this evidence. Nowhere in John is Jesus described as born of God. Not with that language. Of course we know he's born of God, but it's not attached with that same kind of language. But we just read a whole bunch of them. Believers are, are said to be born of God all over the place. So very similar language to believers. So again, that would fit with himself. And First John has already referenced the evil one. If you turn to chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. No one got upset when this verse was, was given out, right? I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Here it is. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one, right? I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you, again, have overcome the evil one. So there is believers overcoming. Right, so there's them doing the action. Of course, we know that that's because of the work of Jesus, but that's not what John says right there in that instant. So then how do believers overcome? Well, we have evidence of that in chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. It says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So given the kind of the the weight of the evidence, it seems like it's okay to take it as himself there and to say that believers can protect, a believer can protect himself from the enemy. Perhaps the idea here from 1 John 18, that kind of the end of it, is not too different than Paul saying to believers to protect them from the evil one, to put on the armor of God. Right? No one's upset about that. We, we talk about it. We want to put on that armor, and no one says, well, how come Jesus isn't protecting us, and we have to protect ourselves with this armor? Like, no one gets upset about that, and I don't think we should get upset here. It could be a very similar idea. John's call to actions throughout this letter have been protective in a way, right? If you walk in the same way that Jesus walked, if you don't love the world so they're not pulled away by its enticements, if you practice righteousness because you know him who is righteous, if you pray for one another, if you abide in Jesus, all of those things would be protective actions that a believer can take. So in other words, those are things for which a believer can do to protect himself from the evil one. So I'll leave it to you. I've put kind of two cases before you. You decide. Uh, I don't think you should get mad either way. Is Jesus protecting me or am I protecting myself? Well, like you, you can decide. But here's the result is that believers are protected and not even touched by the evil one, he says. Now, this doesn't mean that Satan can't cause trouble. Right? Job might have a few things to say about, what do you mean that we can't be touched by the evil one? Sure seemed like you touched me, right? And he did. It doesn't mean that the evil one has no power. Right? Think about verse 19. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. There's power there. Or you think about Peter. Jesus says, hey, Satan wanted to sift you like wheat. Well, here's what's implied there. He has the power to do it. But I prayed for you. Right? Jesus protecting, because he does do that. We know that Satan, right? Peter tells us later, he prowls like a lion seeking someone to devour. Again, implied there that he has actual power. He, he can devour. Ephesians 6, he shoots flaming darts, flaming arrows. But we also know to be true, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one. He destroys them in coming as the Son of God, God in the flesh, living this perfect life before the world, before his Father, and dying a sacrificial death so that all the, the accusations that could fly at those who trust in Christ are then turned away 
because they can now have the answer that they need in Jesus himself. No, I wasn't the perfect one. He was the perfect one, and his righteousness counts on my behalf. It's his work, not mine. So your issue is really with him, and they're protected by the person and work of Jesus. And those who are born of God can know. Notice the certainty and the assurance of the language that ultimately Satan works in their lives, and he might be able to have some power. He might be able to touch lives, but we know that his works will ultimately be to no avail if we are born of God. Job shows this to be true. He went as far as God led him and no further. And Job was restored to God. Peter shows this to be true. He wanted to sift you, but I prayed for you, and when you turned back, and he did. Jesus, the Son, born of God, shows this to be true. He's the firstborn, the one God is making all of his children into the image of. That's Jesus. He was crucified, but he wasn't ultimately defeated. He was raised. He was justified by his Father. And the New Testament is really clear that if Jesus was raised, the, our firstborn elder brother, if he was raised, well, then we also, if we're in him, will be raised as well. So that's for all Christians. You might even suffer to the point of death, even death on a cross, if that's what Satan is allowed to do in your life. But that's as far as his authority goes. And then we know what happens after that if we're in Christ. We can get to meet the same result that Christ met. Resurrection. Leaving a tomb empty behind us as we go to be with the Father forever. John Newton, an old pastor from England, said it this way, Satan will try to hinder and disturb you, but he is on a chain which he cannot break nor go a step further than he is permitted. You remember Pilgrim's Progress? They're walking in. There's lions on either side, and, and Pilgrim doesn't want to go through because there's lions, and that's smart, right? Except that he didn't know that those lions were chained and that there, if you're staying on the middle of the path, they I, cannot get you. And this is true for believers. Like, yeah, Satan prowls around. Yes, he, he shoots fiery arrows at us. Those could really hurt us, but guess what? They don't go a step further than what God, the Father, our Father, has said they can go. They ultimately, we know, cannot touch us. And it's good to know some things, isn't it? And John writes to assure us. His readers were doubting, they were questioning, they were being pulled, they were unsure. And undoubtedly, Satan was at work, and perhaps they knew it, like, this is the work of Satan, but we don't know what's the work of God and what's the work of Satan here. Some had left, some had claimed a different Jesus, there's a different lifestyle we can live, perhaps all of it's his work, and we don't know which is which. And John writes, steadying them, assuring them, because they are born of God. They have eternal life right now, and he says, you're ultimately safe if you're born of him. All the things I've been telling you, you can know these things, and you can know that if, you, if this is you, you're safe, he can't touch you. And where Satan can't touch, Jesus will wipe tears caused by Satan from our eyes because we're born of God. He can still touch. Another really good truth to be assured of. It allows the church, the people of God, the children of God to take this kind of collective breath because the darts and the arrows are going to fly. Satan is certainly prowling and we can say, well, God is going to keep us. Or maybe we're keeping ourselves using the means God has given to keep us. But we know that he cannot ultimately touch us. Do you know that you are born of God? Do you know who you are? Believers are those who can't be touched. They have a propitiation for their sin already. And if you're wondering at this point, like, do I just like saying propitiation in a sermon? Like, yes, I do. I'm going to keep it going. I've really grown to enjoy it. Christians have a propitiation of their sin. There's no wrath left for those who are in Christ. It's already been turned aside. We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We're beloved children right now. Knowing that, really knowing that, means that we're going to have a life of faith. We're not going to keep on sinning. And we're ultimately safe. That doesn't then put us into some sort of passive posture before God. Whether it's Jesus protecting or us protecting ourselves, we all know that there's a sense that he's protecting us even as we're protecting ourselves. 
and that ultimately we're still to be doing the things that he has told us to do, like putting on the armor of God, watch and pray that we may not enter into temptation, abide in him, because apart from him we can do nothing. So is that him protecting us by means or us protecting ourselves? We don't know. I'll leave you to decide. But here's what we can know, that we're of God now. And because we're of God, we're safe. So again, the question is, who, who are you? Who are you? Are you born of God? And when we're born of God and we know these truths and these realities from verse 18, like that's, that makes us man, let's start singing Christmas carols now, right? Because long lay the world in sin and error, pining under the power of the evil one. Right? Didn't John help us feel the weight of that in verse 19? Verse 19, this is what he says, that the whole, we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Again, there's no neutrality but there's the, the weight of the world long laying under the power of Satan. And while the world in sin and error pining lay in that situation, one came. I mean, we're, it's not a Christmas text, right? But, but we're reading in verse 20 that, that we know that the Son of God has come. Yeah, long lay the world in sin and error pining, but there's a till right? Till he appeared. And the soul felt its worth. And verse 20 talks about that appearing. We know the Son of God has come. Right? And the weary world can now rejoice because he has come and has given understanding so that we may know him who is true. Notice again from John, the intentional language. What does he say? There's a title of Jesus that's very intentional, that's very been key to all of his purposes in his writing of the gospel and his writing of this epistle. He uses this word, the, the Son of God has come. It's so central to what he wants to promote and do in his readers. It's because Jesus is the Son of God that he can give understanding that we may know him who is true. If Jesus isn't the Son of God, then he doesn't reveal to us the Father at all. And it's because we're under the power of the evil one apart from him. Verse 19, right? In other words, one doesn't find their way to God. They're under power. But God comes to them, to us. And we too can rejoice when we see him because what Jesus does is he reveals God to us. He's the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory. Philip comes to him and says, show us the Father, and it's enough. And what does he say? Like, if you've seen me, I mean, you've seen the Father. I'm, I'm giving you all that you need. You see it in me. It's in Jesus. He gives understanding to those who walk in darkness under the power of the evil one. It's by his life, his death, his resurrection, that this broken relationship that stood between sinful humanity and, and sinless light of a God that we have is reconciled. Now sinners then can know, know God. And we know that when John uses that word know, that he's using very relational language, intimate language. You can have relationship with him. Apart from the Son of God coming, there would be no weary world rejoicing, no understanding, no knowing of God. That's relational language. And in knowing God, we know that there's eternal life. John 17, 3, this is eternal life. You know the Father and, and the Son who he has sent. And John affirms that reality in verse 20. We are in him who is true and in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. If you've been working through 1 John with us, you, you know that in these last few words and verses, John is, is throwing some heavy blows at his opponents who are questioning who Jesus is, his identity, what his nature is as a person or as a God, they, they were questioning all that. And John is just laying down the blows here on Jesus' identity, asserting he's the Son of God. He's the Christ. He's God in flesh. He's true God. He's eternal life. He's throwing uppercuts at the Antichrist group that is trying to pull people away to follow after a different Christ. And he keeps building them and assuring his actual readers that trust in the Christ that he had proclaimed to them and saying, we're in him. We're in that Christ. We're in that Son of God. We're in Him now. So this is part of the, the answer. Where, where are you? Where are you? We're in this world that is under the power of the evil one. But if we believe in Jesus, 
the Son of God. We're also in Him at the same time. We're under the power of the evil one, but now in Him. So here's what's going on for believers. For those who are born of God, where are we? We're, we're in this already not yet place, but you do not have to then work to be in Him. We don't live so that we might be restored to relationship with the Father. We live from that relationship with the Father. We don't live for our union with Jesus. We live from our union with Jesus. We don't live for eternal life. We live from and in eternal life right now. All of those who share in Jesus share in life with God as his beloved children. If you know God, you know eternal life. That is not true apart from Jesus. Only in Jesus do you know God, and only in Jesus do you know eternal life. And so again, where are you? Do you know that you're in a world that's under the power of the evil one? There there might be pain in that world as he has some power. It's not ultimate power, but some power. But do you also know that you're in him? You're in the Son of God. So who are believers? We are those who are born of God. Where are we? We're those who are in this world, but in Jesus. The place of eternal life is found in relationship to Jesus here, right now. But what time is it? Or in other words, believers who are in this world and in Christ, like, what are we to be doing now? Like, what do we need to set our lives to? Because who we are and where we are should certainly inform what we need to be doing, what time it is and what we need to be about. Because of the already not yet, because we're in between the first advent and the second advent in this world, John exhorts with this final verse, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And John gives assurance. He he has said, we know, we know, we know. He swung the hammer of assurance, chipping away at all their doubt and confusion and, and confused minds and filled with all sorts of stuff from his opponents, and he slings the sledgehammer with clarity over and over, saying, we know, we know, we know. But John also knows that no one has arrived yet, that what we will be has not yet appeared, that there's still this world is full of evil. And so he wants to make sure that believers know that it's not time to coast, because of where we are and because of who we are, that the time is, is still urgent to not coast and to be passive. Though this seems, this verse in verse 21, to kind of come out of left field, like where in the world do you get this? Are you talking about being born of God and all these things, the evil one, and, and then all of a sudden you say, keep yourselves from idols, which he hasn't mentioned before. I, I think a brief look just back through the scripture would warrant this warning being at the end. I'm going to say, look at the people of God from the past. Did they need to keep themselves from idols? John could have looked around him during his lifetime and and said, oh man, do we need to keep ourselves from idols? Like, yes. He doesn't know our history, but we can just look back, brief church history. Do we need to keep ourselves from idols? Yeah, absolutely. We can look back in our own lives. We'll get there, but and say, do we, do we need the warning to keep ourselves from idols? Yeah, absolutely. Like this reminder, this command, this exhortation is absolutely needed. And, and I don't think that it's from left field near as much as we think, but rather it's at the very heart of John's desire for them. He wants them to know that they have eternal life. There's no assurance found outside of actual faith. There's no assurance found in your following idols. And he knows that what you worship, you're going to live after, for and after. And so one commentator says this, instead of this being kind of from left field, John's last line properly leaves us with the most basic question which God continually poses to each human heart. Here it is. Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? What time is it? Time to consider these things so that we can be kept from idols. Time to not coast and be passive in our abiding in Christ, but to actively abide in him by trusting him, obeying him, confessing, repenting, leaning into him over and over again. We are born of God. 
We are in him right now. We have eternal life now. And so for us who are believers, there is no need to look elsewhere, but our hearts are prone to wander. Don't you feel it? <laughs> right? We could read the questions again. Has something or someone besides Jesus taken the title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Now, we might not have an image in mind when we think of idol, often we think of like some sort of image that we are bowing down to actively. Idols are all sorts of potential things that don't look like little figures. They're things that actually are good things that we just raise to a level that only Christ should be at, like family, children, good job. None of those things are sinful in and of themselves, but when they're raised to the level that only Christ should be at, that's an idol. What has your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, delight? Idol is anything that we substitute for God. Something that we'd sin to get or sin if we didn't get. Whatever that thing is, is an idol in your life. You, you could start looking in your life and you could start maybe finding the pathways to some potential idols. What, what makes you the most angry? What makes you the most scared? What gives you the most anxiety and worry and fear and stress? Where do you spend your money on? What do you value in your life? Right? Follow the money. See where it goes. It's going to tell you something about your heart, about what you actually worship. Those are the places, wherever those things are, are places where we're vulnerable. Places where we need to know what time it is. Time to, as John says, stay busy. Keep ourselves from idols. Those are places to be reminded. You're born of God. You don't belong to other things anymore. You belong to God. You're from Him. He has got a precise image in mind for you. The image of His Son. You're to look like Him and you're in Him right now. And so you're to be living a life like him right now. He is eternal life for you right now. And, and that means that he's enough. You have no need to look elsewhere. So keep yourself from idols. So let's ask these questions again. Thinking through them together. Who are you? Are you born of God? Are you from him? Where are you? We're all in the world under the power of the evil one. The world is, but are we also in him in the world? Where are you? What time is it? What are we to be doing if we're of God and if we are in him now in this world under, his, under the power of the evil one, but we're in him in a world of uncertainty? What time is it? John says we can know. He says we know, we know, we know. And church, in the midst of all sorts of unknowns, we can know. And we know, not because we have discovered something, but because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, because he has made God known. Together, we remind ourselves who we are and, and where we are, and that we're looking forward to him, and that we need to keep ourselves from idol by taking a family meal. In the Lord's Supper, we're reminding ourselves that we're not our own. We were bought with a price, the, the price of Jesus' own blood. His body was broken. His blood was poured out so that we might be his forever. Whose are you? Are, are you of God? If you're born of God, this meal is for you to be reminded of what he has done so that you then have eternal life, experience now, but something you also look forward to, to have finally and fully in the future. Are you of God? God, from God. So in the midst of this world that is under the power of the evil one, this, this little meeting together, this, this congregation is a little piece of, of heaven where we are in the midst of a world in opposition. We, we come together as those who aren't ultimately of the world and can't be touched by the world because we're from him and in him right now. And we get to then celebrate that together. That's what we do in this meal that we're in him. So where are we? Like, yeah, we're in this world, but we're in him and we're in him together. So we take this meal as family. But what do you need to be doing? If you're born of him, man, respond by taking this meal in faith. If you're not born of him, we'd say, you need to receive Jesus, believe in him, trust in him, and then we can prepare you to take this meal another time. But this meal is for believers, those born of God. And if you don't know that and you're questioning, you're uncertain, we just say, 
Look to God. Ask him. Let him reveal these things to you because you can know. Church, let's, let's pray together before we take this meal. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that because of your coming, Jesus, because you came to this earth and lived the life that we couldn't live and suffered and died the death that we should have to die, because you did that, Lord, we can answer those three questions with joy, with hope. God, you've made us your own through your shed blood. You've called us your sons. You've kept us and promised to keep us forever in Christ in spite of the evil one who we know controls and fuels this worldly system that has set its face against you, God. You have promised to keep us. And Lord, you have put in our hearts a sense of urgency because of the time in which we live, Lord. We know that as days are passing away, Father, we draw closer and closer to the second advent. We draw closer to the time when all the nations will be judged. And those who believe, those who can answer these three questions, Lord, in joy and in hope, will look to an everlasting existence with you that we can't imagine. But those who don't, those who can't answer those questions in joy, those who are not in you, who are not being kept in Christ, Lord, there's doom, there's judgment, there's wrath, and we know, Father, that you have put us on mission in this world to spread the good news that you have come and that there is hope for those who put their trust in Christ. So help us, Father, as your children, help us to not be distracted by worthless and vain things, pursuits that steal our passions and our attention and our energy, things that will pass away, keep our hearts from idols, Lord. Help us to see clearly the urgency in the time in which we live, and to know beyond doubt, Father, that we are yours and that you are keeping us. And God, we just thank you so much for this book. We thank you so much for this study and God, just the truth um, that weighs so heavy on us. We thank you that your spirit is so faithful to apply it. Help us this Christmas season, God, to to be lights to those around us, Lord, who don't know you, to be encouraging to those who do. Help us to represent you, God. It's what you've called us to do. It's who you've called us to be. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.